Hi, I'm Jerry House. You know, I've known these shady ladies for a very long time, and I love to hear their stories, but you have to take them with a grain of salt. Now, these tales and opinions are not for the faint of heart. And this podcast is not suitable for children, but then neither is the music business. So light one up and lighten up, because you're listening to the Shady Ladies of Music City. Is this on? Are we doing it now? What are we saying again? I'm Evelyn. And I'm Susan. Some people refer to us as... The Shady Ladies of Music City. Truthfully, the reason we didn't have a podcast last week is because I was in the hospital. And it was one of those really weird, strange things where I was sitting at home and suddenly I couldn't talk. I mean, I could talk, but I slurred my words. And for for a couple of weeks, I've been talking to Evelyn and not making any sense. I thought I was making sense. She could talk, but she couldn't stay on topic. You know, you'd be talking to her and think everything's fine. And then all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, a plant or something. And it was just, uh, she couldn't stay on topic, but she could uh, flap the lips. I could, but I didn't know what was going on. And I was sitting there with uh, my girlfriend, Kimberly Lawrence, who's been my esthetician for a long time. And uh, I started to realize that I couldn't walk that well either. My feet were like gumpled up. So I said to her, well, why don't take me to my doctor, Kato, my doctor I've had for 35 years, office around the corner. But I couldn't remember how to get there. And then I couldn't remember his name. So she luckily had looked at my phone and seen what my passcode was and went in and got his address. Well, I still didn't know where we were. And we got there and he gave, you know, he realized that I was not doing well. And he gave me one of those tests that they give to people. You know, what year is it? What date is it? What's your name? The only thing I knew was my name. I didn't know what year it was. I do remember, though, when he said to me, who's the president? And I said, do I have to answer that? And so he said, listen, there's something wrong with your brain. He said, I think you better go to the hospital. So Kimberly, who was traumatized, drove me to St. Thomas Midtown. And uh, they picked me up in a wheelchair. And off we went into the emergency room. But I still couldn't remember anything. I didn't know where I was, but I wasn't really that worried at that point. I was fairly calm about it. And then uh, my partner, my rider die, Teddy showed up. And I think he was alarmed because, I mean, I'm, it was shocking that I remembered him. Anyhow, so I was in the hospital for about three weeks and I had everything done, two MRIs, a brain scan, the worst was the spinal tap because for any of you that haven't had one, which is most of the world, they don't put you out for it. They say, oh, this isn't going to hurt. We're just going to put some lidocaine on your back and then we're going to stick this huge needle in there and draw spinal fluid out. Well, everybody has spinal fluid. Uh, and of course, I hadn't changed my nightgown in three days in the hospital. I had no idea what was going on. And I had on a hospital gown. And I was lying there, you know, on an x-ray table, which is what they do it on. You know, I'm sure that the doctor, who was really nice, I, I mean, it was like I had nothing on. And so the nurse kept saying, you know, we need a little more. We need a little more. They kept taking it. And I really have a huge pain tolerance. So I never really said anything, just kept going on. And at this point, you know, the options were I could have had a stroke, I could have had 
a tumor. I could have had what they call a brain bleed. And then the other option was I could have had water on the brain. And they said that they could put a shunt in my, was it my neck or my back or my spine or something, and drain the water out through some kind of tube. And I thought, well, this sounds like the good news compared to a, you know, a stroke. So anyhow, they never figured it out. Uh, so I was in there for two weeks. My speech came back like in two days or three days. I was already telling them what to do when I was getting the spinal tap, but I couldn't, I couldn't uh, walk right. And they, nobody knew what was going on. And there was one woman in there who was a hospitalist, which is a new thing that they have now, a coordinator between the doctors and the patients. And I said to her, well, what happens if it's not this water on my brain? What was the name of that thing, Evelyn? And she said, well, she said, I hate to tell you this, but you better prepare. You could be going into early early onset dementia. Well, I became hysterical, but how could I be in early onset dementia if I'm 72? That's not early. Anyhow, you know, I got mad at her and said something to her the next day that you should never say that to a patient. If you don't know anything, it scared the shit out of me as it would anybody else. And it scared Ted and we cried. And the next day she said, well, I didn't say that, but she really did. And, you know, I think that I learned a lesson and she learned a lesson. And my lesson was never listen to anybody in the hospital because nobody knows what they're talking about. And eventually a young doctor whose name escapes me, I can't remember his name, Dr. Uh, a young neurologist came in and said, uh, listen, there's nothing wrong with you. There's no striations in your brain. You know, there's nothing going on. We can't find anything. You need to go home. And I said to him, uh, really? You know, he said, yeah. He said, I said, well, how come nobody knows? He said, that's why they call it practicing medicine. Clever. So, but not clever when you're the patient. So I never found out. I had to go into rehab for a, a week. And I really didn't like rehab. The worst beds and the worst food. But the, the, the techs were fantastic. All the people that helped me out, they have to come with you into the shower. And that's when these young girls, and I'm telling it, that's when these young girls would say, don't forget to lift up your bottom, Susan. And I thought, these girls are 20 years old. And they're telling me this. Lift up your bottom. Yeah, because I was sitting on a shower chair. Oh. <laughs> and you have to sit on a shower chair. I'd never taken a shower on a shower chair and you have to wash it. It's really demoralizing <laughs> to be my age and have all these young people running around. And if you put your foot down on the ground in rehab, the alarms go off because they don't want you to walk anywhere because people would run in, oh my God, you're a fall risk. You know, so, you know, the hospital system, as we all know, the healthcare system in America is terrible, but I would not have wanted to be anyplace else. And, you know, St. Thomas Midtown, they were great to me. So here I am doing the podcast. We're back. And I personally am really happy that Susan got through this all and that she's back. We're kicking off the second half of the first season. And we really appreciate everyone listening and most importantly, sharing because apparently the only way you make any money in this podcast business is to spread the word. Um, so we appreciate your listening to us and uh, we'll get on with the show. Well, Evelyn was the head of a label and I was ostensibly the head of A&R because I loved music. And uh, 
A typical day for me was uh, listening to songs all day. I had a Yorkie back then who used to come to the office with me. Just tons of people coming to pitch songs all the time. Got pitched so many songs that you really had no time to listen to the songs for the artists that you were looking for. Uh, and, you know, Evelyn and I got really involved with all the artists and, you know, we weren't there long enough to get as much done as we wanted to. Uh, and, you know, New York didn't really care about our artists at all. They didn't because we didn't sell that many records until George had the accident and then he went platinum on his record. And the trio did too, so they cared about that. They cared about numbers. But uh, we had fun at Asylum, but we were very nervous because the woman that, that hired us, Sylvia Rohn, it came about because this woman had talked to everybody in town and our attorney at the time was Joel Katz, one of the big shots, and he got us an interview with her and I was managing Laurie at the time and Evelyn had her big PR company. Well, truthfully, I had a uh, successful business, Susan had a successful business and neither one of us you know, were looking to do anything different. I just moved into a new building and had signed a five-year lease. So uh, our attorney and our good friend, Joel Katz, had set up everybody up in town that had ever run a label to meet with Sylvia, and she wasn't happy with anybody. And he eventually said, you know, suggested us. We kind of thought, you know, why not? I had, you know, achieved just about everything you could achieve in PR. And uh, we both thought, you know, at long last to be in the position of uh, making some of the decisions that we had always criticized others for not making the right one, that why not do this? And so we uh, ended up doing it. And of course, Tammy died, you know, right before we were supposed to start. So that kind of colored the beginning of our uh, asylum days, but. Well, we went out to dinner one night when we first got there. And uh, it was a place called, I think, It was Coco, the night we got the job. Coco Pazzo. Very tr expensive restaurant. And it was Sylvia and uh, Marty and all the guys, you know, head of marketing, head of uh, it was sales. The head of, it was the head of legal affairs and the head of finance and Sylvia and our attorney and us. And... They were asking Evelyn about her background, and they asked me about my background. And I said, well, to tell you the truth, you know, I wrote a book about being in prison in Mexico. Well, you know, the conversation stopped. And I said, you know, I was, it was a while ago. You know, it was like two years ago. But I said it was a while ago, and uh, I, uh, you know, have changed a lot then. And I saw, and Marty leaned over and said to Sylvia, oh, he said, what were you doing? And I said, smuggling hashish. And he said to Sylvia, don't let her near the finances. <laughs> <laughs> not that I wanted to be near the finances and not that any of my crimes were ever related to, you know, embezzling money or anything, but that was their reaction. But, and you know, in the town, I think, was really happy when we got... Uh, the positions at Asylum because, one, there had never been women before. Two, we were coming from such a different part of the business. You know, traditionally it seemed during that particular period of time that the label heads were coming from sales or promotion. You know, the days of Owen Bradley and Billy Sherrill had passed. <laughs> now it was like business guys doing it. You know, truthfully, I don't really know that much because we were so involved in what we were doing 
that I didn't give a shit what people thought. You know, everybody was busting their ass to try to get success in every label. And I don't know what people thought. Some people liked it, some people didn't. But it was really cool to see how the label worked. And it was really cool to see how the art came out and to work on the art and to work on the covers and to work on all the stuff. I, I liked it. I wish we would have had another year because we would have come with something fantastic. And, you know, it was just, uh, you know, we loved the label, you know, the the projects, you know, putting together projects, album projects. You know, uh, we one of the first albums we did was the Tammy Remembered, and that was so much fun. You know, it was sad because, you know, we're paying tribute to, you know, a good friend who had just died. But we knew a lot of the artists that we had asked to perform, you know, certain songs. And the fact that Elton John came on board, you know, just changed the nature of the project so much. We did a TV special with it as well. And, you know, we sent, uh, you know, a crew over to uh, England to uh, get the recording of Stand By Your Man. So that was really a fun project. Then we signed uh, George Jones right away to the label and immediately started uh, the Cold Hard Truth Project. And we all knew it was great. I mean, you know, the, the songs were really good. Everybody was offering up their best songs. Everybody was looking at it as, as a potential comeback vehicle for George. And, you know, everybody, you know, always considered George the greatest living country singer. So for him to actually get good songs and, you know, uh, a good, you know, really good producer who really believed in him, you know, was, a, was again, a fun project. And, um, you know, we had artists there like Brian White who was just exploding, and he was so cute in concert, him and the band, and Mark Nessler, who was a new artist we were trying to break. So we loved the music part of it. The nightmare part was the ad night, and uh, it just didn't uh, seem to work. And even the artists that had been successful at Asylum before like us, poor like Brian, Brian, White. Brian White and Kevin Sharp. You well, know, Kevin Sharp died. Yeah, but he wasn't dead then. Well, there was another artist who died that we. He known. was a make a wish person. But uh, radio just wasn't working out for us. But we had enough interesting projects that we were selling records. You know, the Tammy record, you know, didn't sell as much as we wanted, but it opened good and it was selling. And George's album was selling. And um, the trio album, the trio right. album, which had already been recorded, but was just sitting there. Nobody was putting it out. And the fact that, you know, we thought, are they crazy? Monty didn't sell that much. Shalita didn't and we sell knew, uh, you know, uh, Emmy and, and the people in the trio. So it made perfect sense that we would work it. And we worked our projects. I mean, we went in there and did every aspect of everything to try to make the projects work. and I mean, We really did, you, you know. We, we would put up our own, you know, uh, expense money, you know, instead of using it, you know, for expenses. We'd like want to make a video with somebody because it was so crazy. Well, I liked it. We had to get there pretty early. I don't remember what time. 10? 10. <laughs> <laughs> I've never worked in a place where I didn't come, you know, to me, 10 is the time you should start. And that's what we did. We had a lot of staff meetings. We had a lot of meetings. I don't know. Day to day was great. It was music every day. But I mean, you know, I had a tea desk, you know, and Susan would sit on the tea and uh, 
Everybody would come all day long. We'd just, you know, meet, see. Talk about what was going on. Evelyn and I borrowed George's bus and went around the country to see about six or seven radio stations with our head of promotions. And we had to just try to go with the songs. And, you know, radio guys are really tough. It was not as much fun in the radio department as I thought it was. But I love listening to all the music that everybody brought. But when we went into the label and we actually started doing business after the, the Tammy funeral was over and everything, uh, the one thing that Sylvia had told us at that dinner was that, you know, we should fire everybody, most especially the promotion department. And we didn't really feel that way because that really wasn't the Nashville way, you know, to come in and fire everybody. And we knew some of those people and we liked them and we didn't, you know, want to be in that position. And the head of promotion for us was one of the first people I had known in Nashville since the, when I moved here. So I had a lot of confidence in him as being a good friend, and he would, you know, help us through, you know, the radio nightmare. In hindsight, I realized that Sylvia was right. We should have gotten rid of the whole promotion, you know, staff and started with a whole new staff as opposed to keeping the staff that was there, just hiring everybody Sylvia back. was right. All her instincts were always right, but they were vicious, and we weren't vicious. We had to re-sign an artist that we really didn't want to sign, and there was a whole argument about it, so I ended up signing the contract, and we were FedExing it back to, back to New York, and all we found out we didn't have to sign it, so we had to get the contract back. Or they didn't want us to late. sign it. <laughs> And we had to get it back, and it was already in the goddamn slit, slot. It was in the slot. Somehow or another, we did get it back. I think we had to look in there and see. It was awful, though. But we did it. There were a couple instances like that. Or maybe we did. That's why they know. called us shady ladies. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the biggest accomplishments, I think, really were you know, probably George with The Cold Hard Truth. George's album was a big highlight because the songs were fantastic. He had almost died. Who produced it? Emery Gordy and Keith Stiegel. It was Keith's first turnaround with George. The songs were fantastic. Even though George had had an accident, he still sounded fairly good. And uh, it, was a, it was a huge... Uh... He had the accident after the album. He did? Yeah, he was listening to the Oh, album. that's right, that's right. Well, whatever. <laughs> the Grammys were won for George Jones' Choices, which was from his album Cold Heart Truth. And the other Grammy was won by Emmy Lou, Linda, and Dolly from the Trio 2 album, and I think it was Heart of Gold, but I'm not sure. It was for a single. But I can tell you one thing, the country albums, they gave them all off screen. So we were walking in with George. George didn't even know he won the Grammy. And it was the night that J-Lo had on that really provocative green dress, and she was with Puffy, and they were walking beside us. And I knew George had no idea who any of these people were. I knew it was going to be a big moment with that J-Lo dress. But Puffy knew exactly who George Jones was. You know, I, I like those days. We had a lot of staff lunches and trying to get everybody on the same page. And 
you know, the big problem was promotion. That was our big problem, trying to get promotion to get our records played. I remember Susan got into a, a fight with one of the, the big deal VPs in L.A., and she started <laughs> yelling at him on the phone. And he said that, you know, she stepped over the line, and she said there is no fucking line. And then, of course, Sylvia called me. I had to call and apologize uh, to him. You know, it was a nice feeling believing that you could, you know, make somebody's dream come true, you know, of discovering an artist and having that whole thing, you know, happen for them. Uh, before you get to the point of failure, <laughs> there's a lot of fun leading up to that. And, uh, you know, I liked, uh, you know, I like the staff a lot. I like the artist a lot. When we started to get shut down, it was just such a, you know, panicked situation. And I think that most of the people that, you know, worked for us really uh, would say that, that they enjoyed that, that period of time. Um, but there's a lot of pressure, you know, to, to that situation that I'm much more sympathetic to nowadays. <laughs> I had never worked at a company before, and Evelyn had never run a label before, and she had never worked for anybody in years. So it was a lot of pressure from Sylvia. And to produce, they wanted hits, and they wanted numbers, and they wanted sales, and they wanted all that. And, you know, and you find out how they get all that numbers and sending, you know records to other countries and selling them. But Evelyn and I were pretty uh, naive about that. And we would go up to New York for the meetings with Sylvia and her team. And she would say, well, when's the impact date? Well, I had no idea what an impact date was. War the Warner con uh, consolidation of labels were going on. So they initially moved us from our own building into the Warner Brothers building. And we were supposed to, you know, use their staff. And, you know, Sylvia basically told me on the phone one morning, you know, it's over. They've, you have no budget left. And we still had contract left. So they moved us over there. And, um, and oh, it was a horrible time because we really, we tried to, you know, save our staff and, you know, get them placed at Warner Brothers. I broke out in hives all over. It was oh, yeah, just she got a really nightmare. Sick. And meanwhile, at Warner Brothers, we're doing gold parties for our, our projects. Uh, and I have to say that, you know, uh, Susan's friendship with Irving Azoff, he tried really hard to try to save us. A lot of people did. did. Irving really tried to save us. He was just a doll. And, I, and, the, and the Warner Brothers... Um, hierarchy. They were very, very supportive and nice to us. I remember the first uh, convention we went to when we first got the job, you know, Mike Curb stood up and just talked about us for, you know, 10 minutes. Yeah, he was, and was really so nice. so gracious and nice. And we had a lot of random support, but not enough to work the big machine. It was the promotion thing. I mean, distribution loved us. We had, you know, a lot of allies within the system, but... Um, you know, it still goes back to being an old boy system at the end of the day. I mean, we had to think of shit because, you know, the men don't tell you what they're doing. The men have a secret deal. I don't know why or how, but they do, and they do their shit, and they have old... They play golf. They do. That's what they do. Everybody plays golf with each other, and all the side deals go down. They do play golf. That's part of the old boy network. I don't know if the new guys do that. Maybe they do. 
Now to address all the Music City myths and legends that surround country music. One of our listeners has asked, when Linda Ronstadt played the Johnny Cash show, she wore a really short skirt on stage, and I heard that June wouldn't let Johnny on stage with her. I don't believe that Linda would do that. You know, Linda was very uh, careful to observe protocol. She really respected Johnny and June. Her father, I think, was a sheriff. You know, I mean, her And her brother, too. I don't think Linda Ronstadt ever would have done that. Thanks for listening. You be sure to subscribe, and we'll be sure to catch you off guard. So light one up and lighten up. Stay tuned next week for our episode called Damage Control, where we discuss various situations we had to take care of as either publicists or managers or the head of the label or whatever. And it's very interesting. But the big news is that we have our own T-shirts that say... Light one up and lighten up. And they're great looking. They're in the classic black with white lettering or white with black lettering. Either way, it's a trendy look. So we hope that you'll join us in uh, wearing our fabulous merch. Buying it and wearing it. No, don't steal it. So share and tell your friends. Then rate, review, and subscribe. Don't be quiet about this. We need you to tell everyone because why is someone going to listen to this? No one has any idea who that we are. So it's up to you to get us known. It has to be a viral thing. It has to be a uh, you know word of mouth thing because we're putting our faith in your hands. We are. For more information on the podcast, please visit www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com. Shady Ladies of Music City is recorded and produced in Nashville, Tennessee, and is presented by Monument Records. Executive producers are Jason Owen, Shane McAnally, and Katie McCartney. Our producer is Sarah DeHilly. Our theme song is written and performed by Robert Shavers. He is also our engineer and editor.